you could remain standing for the honoring of the reading of God's Word. Today's text comes to us from Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. The sermon is entitled, Better for Sodom Than for That Town. Starting with the fifth verse. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. You may be seated. Last week we had an in-depth exploration of the Twelve Apostles. We learned that the list of names was intentionally put together and that the names were listed according to rank. Simon Peter was first on the list and Judas Iscariot was last on the list. We learned that the ones in higher rank were the ones who had closer intimacy with Christ And we left with the exhortation last week that we too should also strive to establish close communion with Christ each day, every single day. Now after choosing the twelve, Jesus in today's text sends them out by pairs for a short preaching journey. They were to go out and preach and minister, but only to Jews within Israel. They were not to go into Gentile territory. In fact, they were specifically to minister only within the villages of Galilee. Galilee was surrounded by Gentile nations. And Jesus explicitly tells them not to go there. In fact, Jesus explicitly tells them not to even go into any of the cities of the Samaritans who were half-Jews who lived south of Galilee. Instead, at this point in the proclamation of the kingdom, the gospel exclusively was for the Jews. Only Jews. Verse 5 and 6 are explicit concerning this fact. Jesus gives the command Himself. Again, this does not mean that God is racist. Racism would be a sin. And if this is racism, then verses 5 and 6 would show that Jesus sinned. 
So this is not racism. What people have to remember is that people are the clay and God is the potter. God has the right to do anything He pleases with His creation, including whether or not they get to hear the gospel. How stunning is that? Both the Samaritans and the Gentiles all over the world would eventually receive the gospel in time. But for the time being, in God's sovereign wisdom, the gospel was restricted only for the Jews. But I want you to think about this. I want you to understand this before you leave. There are times that God restricts gospel preaching. Sometimes we think we are to continue to give the gospel whenever, wherever. And generally that's true. But we have to also be sensitive to the Holy Spirit because this is not the only time that God restricts the gospel to certain areas and excludes certain people from hearing the gospel. This will happen again in the book of Acts as Paul journeys and attempts to go to Asia. And the Holy Spirit says, no, don't go there. This happened before when we were studying the teachings of Jesus and Jesus explicitly said not to cast what is holy to the pigs. We are to exercise wisdom. We are to go into certain cities and exercise wisdom. We are to find out who is worthy to receive the gospel. Jesus says that in the text here today. Now, I also want you to see that in verse 6, Jesus calls Jews lost sheep. This is a very important fact. Although they are Jewish, although they are biologically children of Abraham, notice in verse 6 that Jesus calls them the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The theological reality behind those words remain true today. Even if a person is Jewish by blood, without faith in Jesus Christ, he is lost and headed towards eternal punishment in hell. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're born saved. No one is born saved, in fact. All are born in sin. Ephesians 2.3 Among those whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, both heterosexual and homosexual, of course it feels natural. We, listen, listen to what it says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Our body and our minds think and desire all sorts of perversion because we are by nature children of wrath. And this is what we have to fight against as sanctified believers. But notice what Paul says there. Paul, a Jewish Christian who wrote Ephesians 2.3, said that he knew all needed a Savior even Jews, just as much as Gentile heathen. Why? Because he was part of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jew or Gentile, without Jesus, we are all lost. Jesus clearly sent his disciples out to proclaim the gospel because without faith in Christ, all humans are condemned and headed to hell. As an American, I'm all for supporting Israel as a nation. The book of Psalms says that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. 
But there is nothing inherently salvific about being Jewish. Let me make that clear. The Jews are in need of a Savior just as much as any other Gentile human being on this planet. Sadly, such a statement is usually not affirmed in many secular arenas. Most Jews I speak with today believe that they are saved by birth. I give them the gospel, they say, why do I need to be saved? I'm Jewish. Just this past month, we've heard about Bernie Sanders. His comments regarding evangelicals being unfit to serve in public office because of their belief that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. You heard about that. Earlier in June, uh, the senator from Vermont pressed Russell Vaught, who was nominated by President Trump to be Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget, about his beliefs. In an odd line of questioning... Uh, Senator Sanders repeatedly asked the Trump nominee, do you think that people who are not Christians are condemned? Sanders tried to claim that the the Trump nominee was Islamophobic. How did this all come about? How did did Bernie Sanders, the senator from, from Vermont, find out about this? Well, in 2015, Wheaton College suspended a tenured professor who said that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. So there was a a professor at Wheaton, a Christian school. And so this professor was teaching her class uh, and and publicly declaring uh, that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, that we are all people of the book, if I recall. I remember her statements. Wheaton College then said in a uh, subsequently followed up by saying that in a statement that her statement contradicted its school statement of faith and they suspended her afterwards one theologian commented that although muslims have a deficient theology they could nevertheless have a meaningful relationship with god vaught the trump nominee disagreed with that theologian statement and said quote Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, His Son, and they stand condemned, end quote. Somebody passed that quote along to Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders, who found out about it, brought up the passage during his nomination hearing. Sanders asked Vaught if he thought his statement was Islamophobic. And Vaught responded by saying, absolutely not, Senator. Do you believe in the Muslim religion standing condemned? Sanders asked. What about Jews? Do do they stand condemned as well? And Vaught responded, I'm a Christian. And Sanders responded back, I understand you're a Christian. Who he himself is Jewish, raising his voice. But there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Vaught responded by saying, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. Vaught said this while also emphasizing the centrality of Jesus Christ in salvation. In other words, people need Jesus to be saved. 
Bernie Sanders then announced that he'll vote against him by saying, quote, this nominee is really not someone who this country is supposed to be about, end quote. And that quote drew the ire of evangelicals all over the nation. So according to Bernie Sanders, Jesus' statement in verse 6 would have made Jesus unfit for public service in the United States of America. Jesus' statement in verse 6 that Jewish people are lost sheep would make Jesus as a, an Islamophobic unfit for American service and someone who this country is not all about. How dare Jesus, himself a Jewish carpenter, call Christian Jews, uh, call, call Jewish people lost sheep? That would be the thinking of Bernie Sanders. This attack against the doctrine of exclusivity is not unique, by the way, to the United States of America. In March of this year, uh, two street preachers were found guilty by a British court. The prosecutor here, Ian Jackson, told the quote, listen to this, quote, To say to someone that Jesus is the only God is not a matter of truth. To the extent that they are saying that the only way to God is through Jesus, that cannot be a truth. End quote. That, my friends, is what secular society believes. Although they have no idea what the truth is concerning eternity, they have nevertheless arbitrarily decided that, they, that it cannot possibly be true that Jesus is the only way to God. They, don't, they have no idea who God is and, and whether or not God even exists, but they are absolutely sure, according to them, about one thing, that Jesus cannot be the only way to, to God. And hence, as society secularizes, it will be increasingly the view of our society that the statement made in verse 6 by Jesus is a hate crime. You calling me lost? How dare you? The truth is, instead of it being a hate crime, proclaiming the gospel is the most loving thing that one human being could do for someone else. Verse 7 goes on to say, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Do any of those activities sound like hate crimes? Of course not. As Christians, we know and believe that the healing of the sick, cleansing of lepers, but also, and most importantly, the proclamation of the gospel, all acts of love, everything on that list, especially the proclamation of the gospel, they are all acts of love. They are, this is not a hate crime. Jesus sends His disciples out on a mission of compassion and love. Yet the world today will call His mission a hate crime. Maybe one day you will stand before government officials being accused of hate crime. Simply because you said that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Satan truly has deluded and causes men to call that which is evil good and good evil. And in a strange twist, Muslims are welcomed and protected while Christians are prosecuted and kept out of public office, fined by people like Ian Jackson and Bernie Sanders. Does that make any sense to, to, to any of you?
For this short mission in today's text, we see that the disciples are instructed to not acquire gold, silver, copper, sandals, journey bag, or even a staff. They were instructed to abstain from these items because why? Why? Why couldn't they get any of these things? Well, the answer is in verse 10. The laborer deserves his food. In other words, the people who they were to minister to ought to provide them with their necessities. Now, what does this show us? This principle shows us two things. First, it shows us that God will provide for His ministers and that the disciples ought to take a step of faith. As ministers of the gospel, the disciples ought to take a step of faith, believing that as they leave their nets behind, but beyond that, as not only as they leave their secular jobs behind, but as they go out not carrying any money on their, um, on their own possession or their savings account or what have you, that God would provide. Second, that God's people are expected to provide for God's ministers. They would be the means by which God will provide for His ministers. The same two principles remain true today. Uh, just, just as a personal example, it, earlier this year, I, you recall I forfeited my examination fee by deciding not to take the New York City Deputy Sheriff examination, which comes across, comes around every once every four years. I believe that I have been called to be an ordained minister and that God will confirm that call by providing for my material needs as I dedicated my life solely to the work of pastoral ministry. For me, the taking of a non-pastoral job would have been a lack of faith. And all the glory goes to God. God has proved Himself very, very faithful. The Apostle Paul will later in 1 Timothy use the same words by Christ to command churches to pay their ministers for their labors. While the gospel is always preached for free, there is an expectation by God that the people who receive a spiritual ministry provide for the needs of the spiritual minister with material goods. In 1 Corinthians 9.11, Paul asks the following rhetorical question. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Just as spiritual needs are more pressing than physical needs, so likewise the provision of material needs pale in comparison to the provision of spiritual things. Here's another application from this text. If you think hard enough about it, I also believe that if a city or town cannot provide for the means for a minister to be uh, materially sufficient, God, therefore, as a result, will not allow a church to be planted in that region. If you read the text carefully, I believe that that is an application from this morning's text. This is why Jesus says, go with nothing. In the cities that I have designated gospel receptivity, I will provide for your needs. And if your needs are not provided for, what does he say? Shake off the dust of your feet. You aren't supposed to sit there and get another job. That's my take from this. 
Just as spiritual needs are more pressing than physical needs, so likewise the provision of material things pale in comparison to the provision of spiritual things. God, therefore, will give you the lesser if you provide them with the greater. Now, moving on, some critics of the Bible have said that Matthew 5.10 contradicts Mark 6.8. Here's what Mark 6.8 says. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Critics claim that one text shows Jesus prohibiting the use of a staff, whereas another text shows Jesus allowing the disciples to take a staff. Do do you see that? However, this is not a contradiction at all. The disciples were clearly allowed to use a staff if they already had one, but the point of the passage in Matthew was to show that the disciples were prohibited from collecting and gaining items along the way. They were prohibited from using the ministry as a means for greeting monetary gain. This example, by the way, not only highlights the need for careful exegesis, but also the need for the use of common sense when reading scripture. If the gathering of tunics is prohibited, surely Jesus is not instructing his disciples to go out naked. Likewise, if Jesus is prohibiting sandals in Matthew 10.10, then surely he's not instructing his disciples to go out barefoot. Common sense dictates that two tunics or two pairs of sandals or quite simply, the greedy accumulation of material goods is what is being prohibited by Jesus. There is no contradiction in the word of God here. As disciples, these disciples went into towns and villages, they were to use wisdom and find someone worthy. In other words, they were to prayerfully look for someone receptive of the gospel. Worthy here is talking about gospel receptivity. It's not so much this person is wealthy, wise, or someone of status. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about be wise and look for someone who's receptive to the gospel. Worthy, think about it this way, in your minds, worthy equals gospel receptivity. You're to go in, use your wisdom, and look for it. You're to look for gospel receptivity. But not only gospel receptivity on an individual level, but on a city level. Because you will read the text, Jesus easily transitions from the house, which is a personal belonging, to a town, which is a corporate uh, communal gathering. So the same principle applies. You are to be wise in going into a city and see whether or not this is a city you ought to be investing your time in. So you so, so look what the text says. You go in, find someone receptive of the gospel, and then verse 11 states that they were to stay in the person's home. What does that mean? That means that you were to be fed in that home, be cared for in that person's home, be materially provided for in that person's home until it was time to leave. In exchange, the disciple will pray a prayer of peace and a blessing upon the person's home. Now, in modern equivalent, this would simply be pay. And even back then, Jesus had that in mind because he says the labor is worthy of his wages. Right? So, so if, if, if you all don't want to bring me into your, your home, you could provide me with the funds so that I could stay at a hotel so that I'm taken care of. Many guest speakers do that when they come in to speak for a church, and the church provides for that because of this principle. The principle applies, of course, also in modern churches where you see parsonages. They provide a house for the church, for the church's pastor. They may not ask the pastor to stay in the home, but the principle applies. 
They provide everything that the pastor needs. In exchange, the minister would pray a prayer of peace and blessing upon the person's home. Luke records it this way. Luke 10.5 Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. It, it is a proclamation of blessing. Now, now, in your carnal mind, without faith, you'll say something like, Oh, this minister stayed X amount of days. I gave him so much. He is such an expense. And all he did was say, Peace be upon this house. But with a faithful mind, you say, Wow, the blessing that he gave me is far greater than the material expense that I gave him. It takes faith to say that. Just as God blessed Potiphar on account of Joseph, so likewise God will bless the households of those who receive His gospel ministers. That's the blessing here. However, if the home rejected the minister, the gift of peace would not come upon the home. This principle not only applied to the individual home, as I said earlier, but to the larger village or city. Bible commentator Albert Barnes put it this way, when he says, let your peace return to you. This is a Hebrew mode of saying that your peace shall not come upon it, Psalm 35.13. It is a mode of speaking derived from bestowing a gift. If people were willing to receive it, they derived the benefit from it. If not, then of course the present came back or remained in the hand of the giver. So Christ figuratively speaks of the peace which their labor would confer. If received kindly and hospitably by the people, they will confer on them most valuable blessings. If rejected and persecuted, the blessings which they sought for others would come upon themselves. They would reap the benefit of being cast out and persecuted for their master's sake. Matthew 5.10 Indeed, what's amazing about this text is that even in persecution, where the city casts the gospel preacher out, God blesses the gospel preacher by giving him the peace that he would have blessed that city with. Bengo put it this way in his commentary, A consolation for ministers who appear to themselves to produce no edification. The Lord says to them thus, They have despised it. Have it yourselves. In other words, the minister receives the peace that the household rejected. Wow. You rejected me? All right. (laughs) God's going to bless me. As I close this morning, I want us to look at what are the most sobering words in this morning's passage, verses 14 and 15. So, pay attention as we land the sermon. Coming in for a landing here. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It is noteworthy to consider that both here and in Romans 1, God uses homosexuality to highlight the most repulsive of human sins. What is Sodom and Gomorrah known for? Homosexuality. 
Sodom and Gomorrah was decimated for their sin of homosexuality. Yet as grave as the sin of homosexuality is, Jesus says that the house or town that rejects the gospel after hearing the gospel is in far greater trouble. So you're in bigger trouble for rejecting the gospel than for being gay. I'm just that's a blunt way of putting it. Yes, you're going to be in trouble for being gay, but you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble for hearing and rejecting the gospel. This not only shows the fact that there will be differing punishments in hell. Think about that. I just I'm going to say it again. There will be different punishments in hell. Just as there will be different rewards in heaven. But it also shows that there are differences in severity of sin. So as bad as premarital sex is, as bad as adultery is, homosexuality is worse. That's why Jesus uses that sin often, the Bible uses that sin often to highlight the most atrocious of sins. And as bad as homosexuality is, the sin of rejecting the gospel is far worse. Whenever the Jews came back from Gentile territory, they would shake off the dust off their feet so that they, could, they would not contaminate their homeland with unclean dust from Gentile lands. Likewise, if any home or town rejected the disciples and their message, they were to dust off even the dust from their feet as a sign of their pending condemnation. Even the dust of a town that rejected the gospel was loathsome to God, and He did not permit it to cling to the feet of His ministers. Can you imagine that? That's how much God hates that sin. The disciples were to stay and preach if the gospel was well received, but they were to wisely move on and not waste further time if, uh, and efforts if the gospel was stubbornly rejected. That's such an important principle. I'm going to say it one more time because you are going to waste your life if you don't get this principle right. The disciples were to stay and preach if the gospel was well received. But they were to wisely move on and not waste further time and efforts if the gospel was stubbornly rejected. This, by the way, was not a command just for one preaching trip in Matthew 10. Just in case you're thinking, oh, that was just for them in Matthew 10. Otherwise, Jesus just tells them to stay in territories. No, 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 that's not... Paul and Barnabas obeyed this command in the book of Acts after Jesus' ascension, and we are expected to obey it today as well. Listen to Acts 13.50-51. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. That right there took there took place in Poseidon, Antioch during their first missionary journey. But it wouldn't be the only time or the last time that Paul will employ the missiological practice of shaking off the dust off his feet. Turn with me to Acts 18, 4 through 6. They reason in the synagogue every Sabbath and try to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the world. word. Why? Because before that, he was tent making. This is in Corinth. But when Silas and Timothy came, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. 
solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. You see that? This is a missiological practice that we are to obey today. Which brings us to New York City. We've tried as a church to reach this city. We've evangelized every week for the last five years. And I could say for myself for the last, what, 30 some odd years. I've tried to reach this city both for the cause of Christ and for the cause of His righteousness, particularly with regards to the issue of the sanctity of marriage. But all around us, there has been nothing but rejection. Rejection from lay people, rejection from clergy. As verse 14 states, they will not receive me nor hear the words of Christ. Hence, I can say in good conscience that it is time for me to move on. I've tried my best. As Jesus said, when they persecute you in one town, lead to the next. Jesus said that. God desires us to be good stewards of our time, talents, and energies. We must not continue to foolishly throw precious seed upon hardened, infertile soil. The Master will demand a harvest. If you recall a few verses earlier, Jesus Himself said that the harvest was plentiful. So the question this morning is, where will you go from here? Where is the harvest? Will you dust off your feet and move on, having done your very best here? Is it time for you to look for fertile soil? Those are questions for you to answer. I cannot answer those questions for you. I was evangelizing this past week with David, and I fully enjoyed the racial diversity that I have access to in a city like New York. I made that comment. Maybe perhaps God wants you to continue reaching the nations through a multi-ethnic city like New York. Remember that if Sodom only had ten righteous people, God would not have destroyed it. Perhaps God wants you to stay and intercede on behalf of New York. I don't know. Only God can answer that question for you. I only know the answers as they pertain to me and my family. Hence, I urge you to pray and seek God's guidance because it may may very well be time for all of us as a church to move on. Because remember that in Christ, the best is yet to come. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for today's word.